even as we've just confessed in song, even now in prayer we proclaim glory to God in the highest. Glory to God. You are the God who loves us. And you're the God who gave the gift of Jesus Christ. Even as we will see this morning as we look at this passage. And Heavenly Father, even as we focus in on your word this morning, we pray that your spirit will work in each and every one of us for your glory. That through the word, that your spirit would challenge us. That you would mold us, that you would change us for your glory. I pray that you would give me boldness to proclaim the truth of your word with clarity and with authority. And I pray that you would be lifted up in this time, that distractions would fade away, and that your word would do the work that you have called it to this morning. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. On May 25, 1961, President John F. Kennedy proposed a challenge to Congress. He said this, I believe that this nation will commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important to the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. This goal set forth by President Kennedy came in the midst of a technological cold war between the United States and the USSR. To put a man on the moon and to bring him home safely before the Soviet Union was able to do the same would not just be an accomplishment for the American people, it would be a statement to the world. With this goal before them, the funding secured, NASA set out to put a man on the moon and to return him safely. An army of scientists and engineers and other support staff worked tirelessly through many breakthroughs and many breakdowns. Over the next several years, this crew faced problem after problem, and yet they persevered and came up with solution after solution. After trial and error, victory and tragedy, their goal was finally accomplished. Apollo 11, with the crew of Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin, launched on July 16, 1969, with the goal of reaching the moon. And just a few days later, on July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong became the first human to step on the surface of the moon. The goal put before Congress on May 25th, 1961 was complete. Man walked on the moon. I imagine if you were alive in 1969, you probably vividly remember this day. I've heard stories, I've, I've seen specials on uh, History Channel, I was, I was still about uh, 20 years in the future. But I've heard stories, I've seen specials, I've, I, I've sat with people and they've talked fondly of this day. July 20th, 1969 stands out as one of the great dates in American history. And Neil Armstrong stands out as one of the great American heroes of our time. 
Well, of your time. <laughs> the reality is that although Neil Armstrong played a vital role in the American space program, he was hardly acting alone. He may get the majority of the glory, but he didn't even do most of the work. Armstrong played a vital role in putting a man on the moon, but his was not the only role, and it probably was not even the most important role. There were thousands of men and women who invested countless hours and years of their life to accomplish this mission. As we approach Christmas, our minds are drawn to an even greater mission. As man reached out to touch the moon, at Christmas we celebrate the God who reached down to earth, who reached down to man. The focus of Christmas is on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God, with us. We focus on the birth of Jesus. We focus on the shepherds who heard the good news of the wise men who came bearing gifts. The Christmas story begins not in Bethlehem, but in eternity past. As Neil Armstrong did not act alone to reach the moon, so Jesus did not act alone to save man. Our God is a triune God. And every member of the Trinity is intimately and vitally involved in the Christmas story. The birth of Christ may be at the center of our Christmas celebration, but the birth of Christ is not the entirety of the story. At Christmas, we don't celebrate a rogue member of the Trinity. We celebrate one Godhead working together to save man. I'm sure I want to focus on that truth. I want to focus on the triune God of Christmas. And so my goal over the next three Sundays, uh, this morning, this evening, and the next Sunday morning, leading into the Christmas program next Sunday night, my goal is to take one service to look at how each member of the Trinity is involved in the Christmas story. This year we'll see the Father who gives, the Son who goes, and the Holy Spirit who guides and supports. And may God be glorified as we look at the triune God of Christmas. This is not working. There we go. So this morning we're going to focus on God the Father. What role did the Father play in the Incarnation? I invite you to join me, John 3.16, as we look at this well-known and beloved passage. We'll see the Father's goal in the Incarnation, the Father's action in the Incarnation, and the Father's motivation for the Incarnation. And the first thing we're going to see is the goal. The goal of the Incarnation. Like I mentioned, John 3.16 is a verse that many of us know, probably most of us could quote it. It's probably one of the first verses that almost all of us memorized. And John 3.16 comes in the context of a conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. It's a private conversation where Jesus and Nicodemus have met at night. Nicodemus is a man with great authority. He would have been well known. In fact, here in John 3, in verse 1, he is called a ruler of the Jews. Jesus himself calls him, in verse 10, the teacher of Israel. 
Nicodemus was well known. He had authority. He had power. His name was recognized. It's this powerful teacher who approaches Jesus at night and essentially asks him, Who are you? Who are you? And Jesus answers not just by telling Nicodemus who he is, but why he has come. In fact, in the verses leading up to John 3, 16 and verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this, speaking of himself as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You'll notice as you come to John 3.16 then, that the first word is for. It's a continuation of John 3.15. It's the reason why the Son of Man must be lifted up. So if you're following this conversation in John 3, it starts like this. Nicodemus comes and says, Who are you? And Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man. I have been in the throne room of heaven. I am telling you what I've seen, what I know. Well, then Nicodemus says, well, what are you doing? Why are you here? I have come to be lifted up so that whoever believes in me will have eternal life. The next logical question is, why? Why? Why have you come to be lifted up? And that is what we see in verse 16, John 3, 16. So we come to this verse this morning, it makes the most sense for us to actually start at the end of John 3.16 and to work our way phrase by phrase to the beginning. Before we can see God's motivation for the incarnation, before we can, can see what God did, we have to understand what his goal was. We have to understand why the incarnation was necessary to begin with. What was the problem that led to the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Why must he be lifted up? The goal of the Incarnation is that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 makes it clear that without the Son being lifted up, we would perish. In fact, perishing is not just one option for man out of many, it is the only option. If He is not lifted up, if God does not send the Son, then we will perish. It is the only option. Unless God steps in. Perishing is our right. Perishing is what we are naturally headed towards. The Bible makes this clear. Romans 3.10 says this, There is none righteous, no, not one. But the idea of man's sin is not just a New Testament truth. Even that verse, Romans 3.10, Paul there is referencing Psalm 14.3 that says this, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. We could look to, Psalm, to Isaiah 53.6 which says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. We can turn a few verses over to Isaiah 64, 6, which says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. 
As if it has not been made abundantly clear, Paul drives it home with piercing, with soul-piercing clarity in the familiar verse of Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. However, the problem, as John 3.16 is making clear, is not just that we have sinned. It's not just that we are sinners. The problem is that sin has a penalty. As Romans 6.23 points out, the wages of sin is death. Or, as we see here in John 3.16, the penalty of sin is that we will perish. Perishing, death, that is what is rightfully ours. That is what we deserve. That is what we have earned. Death is not the harsh reaction of an unloving, vindictive God against an innocent people. The problem in John 3.16 is not that we are innocent and that God is just angry. The problem is that we are perishing and God loves us. Death is our right. It is what we have earned. If it is sin that characterizes us, then it must be death that follows us. Death is the penalty that a loving, holy, and just God must levy against an unholy, unrighteous people. So as we come to the truth of John 3.16 this morning, we come as a people on the brink of eternity with a sentence of eternal damnation stamped on our rebellious hearts, pulling us down. We are sinners. And we will perish. Unless God steps in. And the glorious truth of John 3.16 is that God has stepped in. John's 3.16 is an offer of forgiveness. Notice what the end of this verse says. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God came not to, to punish us. God came to give life. Paul says in Colossians 2, 13-14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, what was rightfully ours, with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The debt that is rightfully yours and the debt that is rightfully mine has been covered. It has been paid. As Romans 6.23 goes on to say, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Or, as this passage, John 3.16 says, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And what we deserve is to perish God has offered us a way out to believe in Him. The end of John 3.16, this passage makes it clear that the Father's purpose in the Incarnation is the salvation of sinners. Man is facing the fate of death. We are facing perishing. 
But God's goal was to give us life. But who is the hymn of John 3.16? Forgiveness is offered universally, but it is only those who believe in him that will not perish. Who is him? And how can this be? The goal of the incarnation is to save sinners, but what action did God the Father take to save sinners? How can a God who is just remain just and forgive sin? What's the next thing we see? Is the action that God took. As we back up in John 3.16. He gave His only begotten Son. He gave His only begotten Son. In order to save man, God gave His only begotten Son. The hymn of John 3.16 is Jesus Christ, it is the Son of God. God gave Jesus to save sinful man. But notice exactly how Jesus is described in this verse. Jesus is not just a son of God. He is the only begotten son of God. Only begotten carries the idea of uniqueness. One of a kind. Jesus is uniquely in his, Jesus is unique in his relationship to God and he is unique in his likeness to God. The word begotten here does not mean born, but proceeds from. It does not refer to a beginning for Jesus. To any time when Jesus did not exist. Nor does it refer to any kind of relationship change between God the Father and God the Son. The word begotten speaks to what theologians call the economic trinity, or what the members of the trinity, how they relate to one another. Begotten is not speaking to who Jesus is, but to what Jesus does. Jesus is begotten in the fact that Jesus proceeds from the Father with the same essence of the Father. Jesus is eternally the Son of God. The Son and the Spirit are not less God than the Father. And God the Father is fully God. And God the Son is fully God. And God the Holy Spirit is fully God. But there is a distinction. See, God the Father is not God the Son. And God the Father is not the Spirit. And God the Son is not the Father. And God the Son is not the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Trinity is three persons and one essence. And Jesus is uniquely and eternally the Son of God. It's important for us to, to, to understand or, or maybe somewhat wrap our minds around this fact. Because as Romans tells us, God is both just and the justifier. And the reason that those who should perish can have eternal life if they believe in Him is because God gave His only begotten Son. God gave the Son who is unique in His relation to God and His likeness with God. 
It's because God gave His only begotten Son. Because God gave. I think a lot of times when we think of the Christmas story, we think of giving. We think of what Jesus gave in the Incarnation. We think of Christ who, who left heaven, who took on flesh. And that's a good thing to consider. In fact, this evening, we'll look to Philippians 2 and we will consider what Jesus gave. We must not forget that God the Father gave. Your salvation cost the Father dearly. Paul writes in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In Romans 8.32, Paul is struck with the reality, with the contemplation of what God gave up for him. And it gives Paul comfort and assurance. What God gave the world in Jesus Christ is the greatest gift that was ever given. Not just because of what it means for those who receive it, but because of what it cost the one who gave. God gave His unique Son for you and for me. The immediate context of John 3.16 makes it clear that the focus is on the cross. But Christ cannot die if He is not firstborn. God gave His Son to the Incarnation so that He could give Him on the cross. As we come to this point in the message, I think it is appropriate for us to pause and to marvel at this great truth. To marvel at this great God the selfless gift of a jealous God for a selfish people. I pray that this reality will fill you with wonder and give you hope and assurance this morning as it did to Paul. Look what God gave you. His only begotten Son. And if God did not spare His own Son to save you, you can be sure that He will give you all that He has promised. God the Father was fully invested in the Incarnation, and God the Father is fully invested in your salvation. Your salvation was not a side project of Jesus Christ. It was the plan of God from eternity past, and God gave dearly to save you from your sins. Finally, as we come to the beginning of John 3.16, we see the motivation. God's motivation and giving the only Son. Why would God do this? Why would God give His only begotten Son? For God so loved the world. God the Father loved the world in this way that He gave. The motivation for the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the love of God. God's love for man is so intense that it led him to give his only begotten son. When I, had, was, when I was in college, I 
Bob Jones University, I had several friends who were big fans of European soccer. It takes dedication to follow European soccer, specifically the English Premier League. It is widely considered to be the best soccer league in the world. It has the best teams and it has the best players. The Premier League is to soccer what the NBA is to the basketball world. It is the Premier League. It is where all the best players go from around the world. But I say it takes dedication because the UK is about five hours ahead of us. From us here, it's about six hours ahead of us. Which means if you're going to follow these games, you have to get up really early. And I had several friends who in college loved their team so much that they were willing to give up sleep on a Saturday in order to watch their team play. I was invited many times, and I always turned them down, but many times to meet at a friend's house at 5 or 5.30 in the morning to watch a game. Mind you, these are high school and college students. Students who would set their alarms on Saturday morning for 4.30 or 5 a.m. in the morning to watch a soccer game on TV. Many of these same students struggled to wake up in time for class at 8 o'clock the next Monday. But they never missed a game on Saturday. It was not duty that drove them to give up sleep on Saturday. It was love. It's because they, beloved, they loved their team. The game of soccer was so beloved to them that they were willing to give up something that was so precious to them as a college student, sleep, in order to watch it. At an infinitely more intense level, God loves the world so much that he is willing to give his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 flies directly in the face of those who may think that God's love was motivated by Christ's death. Some look at the Bible and in the Old Testament they see an angry, a vindictive God. In the New Testament, they see a change. They see a loving God. And they come to the conclusion that it is Jesus' death that changed God's mind. That God the Father saw how much the Son loved man and that changed His mind. The Bible is not a contrast between a vindictive, angry God of the Old Testament that is moved to love in the New Testament because of Jesus' self-sacrificial love for the world. The Bible is the unified story of an unchanging God pursuing and saving unfaithful man. God's love is not impacted or motivated by Christ's death. It is Christ's death that is motivated by God's love. Notice also what it does not say. John 3.16 does not say that God so loved His people that He gave His only begotten Son but that God so loved the world. It's His love for the world that motivated Him to send His Son to offer salvation to the world. In fact, notice that it does not even guarantee or promise that the whole world will be, who is so beloved by God will believe. God sent His Son so that whoever, whoever believes, 
The offer of salvation is as universal as God's love. But the application of salvation is particular to those who will believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes may be saved. The next logical question is why? In this verse we can see God's purpose to save those who believe. In this verse we can, we can understand what God did. He gave his son. In this verse, we even see his motivation because he loved the world. But the question is, why does God love the world? Why? There's nothing in the world that would cause God to love it. And God's love is not motivated or impacted by anything that is outside of himself. God does not love the world because of the beauty of the world. God does not love the world because of pity that he takes on the world. God does not love the world because it's his duty to love the world because he created it. God loves the world because God chooses to love the world and because God is love. There is nothing outside of God himself that motivates his love for the world. Romans 5.8 makes it clear that God loved us when we were still sinners. It's not that we had started turning in the right direction. We were still sinners. We were still condemned. First John 4.19 again makes it clear that we did not love God first, but that God loved us. God's love is as undeserved as the salvation that it brings. And can I tell you something this morning that is hopefully encouraging to you? God loves you. God loves you so much that He gave His only begotten Son. God's love for you is so infinitely more intense and costly than you can even begin to comprehend. God loved you so much that He gave. In conclusion, this Christmas, remember the God who loves you. Remember the God who gave you the greatest gift. The question as you look at John 3.16 this morning is not are you worthy or not. The question is do you believe? If you're here this morning and as we've looked at John 3.16 maybe you've come to the realization that you have never believed. You are not in Christ. You have not believed in the only Son of God. I would call to you this morning, won't you believe? It doesn't matter if you've been a member of this church for 60 years, which would be impressive because we haven't even reached our 60th year yet. But if you've been from the very beginning, if you have been here, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how long you've gone to church. It doesn't matter how much you've given. The question is not, 
what you have done. The question is, have you believed? Look what God has done for you. See how much He, how much he loves you. And this morning, if you have not, won't you turn to Him in faith? Won't you believe? Secondly, those who are in Christ, those of us who have believed, be encouraged this morning by these truths. See what God the Father has done for you. This morning we've meditated on the greatness of God's love for us as displayed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Find comfort in these truths. Find assurance in these truths. Because the God who loves you enough to save you loves you enough to sustain you. And everything that he does, he is working for your good and for his glory. I call you this morning to trust in him. To rest in him. To have faith in him. He is good. And his love for you is so much more than you can come.